On 27th of January this year, there was a fire at the Kist nightclub in Santa Maria, Brazil. It killed over 240 people. Stories emerged of inadequate fire prevention, blocked exits, and victims killed by panic or smoke as they tried to find an escape route. The reports of the fire could have been copied verbatim from the 2000 Luyang fire in China, the 2003 The Station Nightclub fire in Rhode Island, the 2004 Republica Chromanon fire in Argentina, or even the Coconut Grove fire in Boston 70 years ago. We know how these fires started. We know how they spread. We know why people couldn't escape. This week, we speak to fire scientist Claire Benson about how to stop fire disasters. You're listening to DisasterCast, Episode 5. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray. If you've listened to the previous episodes of DisasterCast, you're probably used to hearing just my voice. I'd really like this to be a more open show though. In particular, where there are experts on the topic of the week, I'd rather you hear them directly rather than my garbled interpretation. This episode features fire scientist Claire Benson. We'll start the show as usual, with discussion of an accident. Then we'll kick over to the interview with Claire. The final segment features Claire talking about some common myths and misconceptions about fire. To begin though, let's head to 18th November 1987 at King's Cross Underground Station in London. Presented as a sequence of events, here's what happened at King's Cross on the evening of 18th November. At around 25 past 7, someone was smoking on escalator number 4. This escalator ran from the Piccadilly line platforms to the ticket hall. The smoking wasn't unusual. There was a theoretical ban on smoking within the station, put in place after a fire at Oxford Circus, but this ban wasn't enforced. In fact, Fires on the underground escalators were not rare events, and of the fires that had been fully investigated, most were caused by material dropped by smokers. This particular smoker dropped their cigarette, which fell through the treads of the escalator onto the running tracks. There were supposed to be fire cleats to stop this happening, but lots of the fire cleats were missing. The running tracks were stuffed full of grease and debris. They were supposed to be regularly cleaned, but this hadn't been happening. Afterwards, the investigators found evidence of several small fires that had started on the running bed, but all of the previous fires had burnt out before they caused much damage. So the debris and grease caught fire, and the grease began to melt and spread. At 7.29, one of the passengers on the escalator noticed the small fire and told staff at the ticket office. 
Another passenger noticed fire and smoke a minute later and stopped the escalator, shouting a warning for everyone to get off. Rail staff arrived to investigate, and a police constable who was present went upstairs to call the London Fire Brigade. He had to go right to the surface to do this, since his radio didn't work underground. This call went to the transport police headquarters, who called 999, who called the fire brigade. Meanwhile, several police constables began to organise an evacuation from the lower platforms through the ticket hall. The relief station inspector in charge of King's Cross was at this stage still looking for the fire, having been told the wrong location. Eight minutes after the fire had first been reported, he eventually found the right escalator, but he had to go back for a CO2 extinguisher. By the time he reached the fire with an extinguisher, the fire was just too big. He couldn't get close enough to put the fire out. There was a water fog system installed at King's Cross Underground, but no one thought to turn this fog system on. Throughout the entire accident, this system never turned on. At 7.39, ten minutes after the fire had been reported, the police decided to evacuate the whole station. At this stage, no one from London Underground had taken control of the situation, and trains were still stopping at the station, letting passengers off. The police had to specifically tell the ticket office to stop selling tickets to people coming into the station. At 7.42, almost 15 minutes after the fire had been reported, the police realised that trains were still stopping on the Piccadilly line. These trains were putting people onto the platform that the police were trying to evacuate up through the ticket hall. The police ordered the ticket office staff to evacuate, but no one told the staff in the money-changing office or checked the toilets for passengers. During the next two minutes, firefighters arrived and started to rush down into the station, at the same time as smoke and flames started to come up. During these two minutes, the fire had suddenly blazed from a small spot fire on a single escalator to sheets of flame filling the concourse with deadly smoke. The firefighters concentrated on getting as many people out as quickly as they could. Down on the platforms, the police and staff realised that evacuation upwards was now out of the question. By now, just when they were needed to get people out, the trains were finally not stopping on the Piccadilly line platforms. A technician flagged down three trains, which were used to evacuate the platforms. So, here's the situation at eight o'clock. The main ticket hall is filled with thick black smoke, and the escalators are belching more and more smoke into the hall. Remember, people were being evacuated through the ticket hall when the flashover happened. This is where most of the 31 fatalities occurred. Small pockets of people are dotted throughout the station, particularly on the platforms. Two police officers and a technician who were helping a badly burned man escape are trapped between the fire and a set of locked gates. The three officers in charge of the first fire units to respond are missing. It turns out later that one of them is dead, another is trapped fighting the fire from below, and a third is helping the evacuation. The firefighters on the surface don't have plans of the station or anyone from London Underground to guide them. They're trying to attack downwards into a fire that's trying to come upwards, and they don't know about any of the back entrances into the station. Trains are still stopping on the Northern Line platforms, letting passengers out into the burning station. At 9.40pm, 
More than two hours after the fire was reported, the last civilians are finally evacuated from the station. I think it's easiest to explain why this disaster happens by drawing out a number of themes. We'll consider in turn the start of the fire, the spread of the fire, and the evacuation. Then we'll go over some organisational issues that cross all of these things. To start a fire, three elements must be present. Heat, fuel, and an oxidising agent, usually air. In public spaces like a train station, we can't exactly remove the air, but we can do a lot about heat and fuel. Housekeeping is a prosaic but important element in safety. Keeping surfaces clean and free of debris doesn't just prevent problems, it also provides an opportunity to detect ongoing issues. Had the escalators been properly maintained, there would have been no kindling for the fire, and at the very least, the evidence of previous near misses would have been noticed. Likewise, maintenance would have detected and replaced the missing fire cleats. There are some organisational reasons why the maintenance wasn't happening, and why an escalator fire wasn't being treated as a safety hazard, requiring vigilance and oversight. We'll get to those. As well as fuel, you need a spark. At King's Cross, that spark was almost certainly a match from a smoker. Now remember, this was 1987. It wasn't unheard of for some places to have smoking bans, but it wasn't the norm either. Of course, there's a big difference between please don't smoke because you're exposing other people to passive smoking and a higher long risk of cancer, and please don't smoke because you're riding on an aged timber escalator soaked with decades of oil and trimmed with flammable varnish. That's a message that hadn't got through to the staff. They thought the ban was for customer convenience and weren't enforcing it. So, fuel, spark, air. No surprise that there was a fire. I mean, really, no surprise. Escalator fires were a regular occurrence on the underground. There had been hundreds. Fire's a bit of a scary word, so they didn't call them fires. They called them smoulderings. London Underground Operations were concerned about injury to staff putting out smoulderings, but that's really the extent to which they received safety attention. The spread of the fire was less foreseeable. London Underground shouldn't have been complacent about the constant fires, but their experience had taught them that there wasn't much to worry about. The King's Cross Fire introduced a new concept in fire dynamics called the trench effect. The nature of the trench effect wasn't fully understood until investigators had recreated the fire in scale models of the escalator and ticket hall. The flow of air on the burning escalator caused the flames to lie down along the inclined surface. Not only was the full size of the fire hidden, but each part of the fire was preheating the next bit of wood, causing it to dry out and to release flammable gas. Once the fire was hot enough, the released gas self-ignited, resulting in a jet of flame racing up and out of the escalator. This leads us to our next theme, the evacuation. The constables didn't know about the trench effect. Until they were caught in the middle of the flashover, they didn't know that at 7.42, the ticket hall would be the absolute most dangerous part of the station. They were using their best judgement to assess the situation and to get people out as quickly and safely as possible. That meant letting them out through the ticket hall. Here's the problem, though. 
It was sheer luck that the constables happened to be there in the first place. Most of them didn't even usually work in that part of the rail network. Their best judgement was no substitute for a station full of staff who'd trained and practised what to do in the event of a fire. It's difficult to know exactly what effect better staff training and coordination would have had. Poor communication and training meant that no one was in the right time, in the right place, to use extinguishers, and no one turned on the water fog system. It's possible that the fire could have been contained. It's very likely that development of the fire could at least have been delayed. It's almost certain that the evacuation would have been quicker and more complete, saving at least some of the lives that were lost. The lack of staff preparedness is only a small part of the organisational story. In fact, none of the systems necessary to cope with this sort of incident were working. Command and control during the fire was fragmented. Some of the line controllers were told to prevent trains stopping at the station, others were not. There was limited feedback to find out what the trains were actually doing. The interface between London Underground and the fire brigade was completely broken, hindering both the evacuation and the firefighting. Local supervision was also weak. There were two staff physically present on barrier duty. Two other staff were on an extended, unauthorised break, and one was absent. This situation was not unusual. Had all five been present, though, it wouldn't necessarily have helped, since they had no training for this sort of situation. Let's not blame the station manager for this, though, because they were in a temporary office far from the centre of the station due to building works. This wasn't by choice. The station manager knew that this location was bad for supervision and safety but he'd been overruled. As you can see, there were so many things wrong with the management and organisation that we really need to simplify in order to make sense. At the most simple, the most basic level, we have a set of hazards that were not being managed. The starting point for this management would have someone, a single person, to take responsibility for fire hazard assessment and mitigation. Their plan would cover fire prevention as well as fire response. It would be their job to make sure that mitigations and contingencies were appropriate, agreed, implemented and maintained. Such a person did not exist at the time. It was not even obvious, in the aftermath of the fire, who that person should have been. Three separate directors had theoretical responsibility for safety. The engineering director was responsible for maintaining safe equipment. The operations director was responsible for safe operations. The personnel director was responsible for safety of staff. No one had explicit responsibility for passenger safety. The most senior safety staff were at least two, typically three levels below these directors in the organisational chart. So in keeping with our simple picture... If we wanted to make sure that there was one person with responsibility for fire safety, we first needed to make sure that there was one person with responsibility for safety full stop, and that they had sufficient authority and resources to make sure that their responsibility was met. Since the three departments of engineering, operations and personnel all had a role to play in safety, only someone at director level would have had enough clout to manage safety effectively. 
The full report into the King's Cross fire goes further even than this. It looks at the failures of oversight and regulation that allowed the poor management situation, the poor management structures to be in place. As usual, I'll put a link to the full report in the show notes. The theme of this episode, fire, is somewhat beyond the edges of my own expertise as a safety engineer. To help me out, I spoke to Claire Benson, fire scientist and safety risk communicator. Here's Claire. My name's Claire Benson, and I am a fire scientist at the London South Bank University Fire and Explosion Research Group, where we do research on a variety of aspects of fire safety and fire investigation. The research that we primarily do is looking at industrial safety. So we've done work on flammable gases, oxygen safety, hydrogen accumulation, and uh, trying to limit the chances of some sort of catastrophic incident. To become a fire expert, you need to start with a thorough grounding in the underlying physics of thermodynamics and heat transfer. Add to that training in system safety and failure analysis. Then acquire and demonstrate research skills that cover forensic investigation, epidemiology, and complex human behaviour. This is a 30-minute podcast, though, so Claire was kind enough to provide a pocket summary. Fire engineering is quite a complex science, but if I can boil it down to just a few things. First, I would think about limiting the ignition and the spread of the fire. So I'd be using low ignition materials, trying to use materials that don't ignite easily or that don't promote the spread, and trying to use as few materials as possible, actually, to reduce the fuel load. That's the amount of stuff that's burning. One of the most important aspects of that sort of work is compartmentalization, actually looking at keeping a fire in a space for as long as possible. There's a number of ways you can do that. Firstly, you can put in fire stops and simple things like fire doors and actual big walls, but also using chemicals to help you, like intumescent materials, which actually swell when they get hot. So they try and, again, limit the oxygen flow through to that compartment and limit the smoke and the heat that's getting out from a compartment into other compartments. Apart from limiting the spread of that fire to stop things from being damaged, you're also giving people time to escape, because another very, very important aspect of fire planning is looking at evacuation or the safety of the people in an environment. In terms of evacuation, you need to be looking at giving people space to move around and enough light to see so that they know where the exits are. With very, very large structures that they're building now, like the Shard, they've actually got some very new ideas around this. Traditionally, we would have very wide spaces or enough corridors and stairwells to make sure people had enough exits to get out. But now, with very large skyscrapers, they're actually looking at a number of alternatives. For example, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai has pressurised areas that people can go to to stay where they are rather than evacuating the whole building at once. And the Shard has fire lifts. It actually has lifts for people to use to get out of the building safely. These are a number of new ideas that are coming in. We then moved on to talk about more recent developments in the science of fire safety. There were a lot of quite bad incidents in the 1980s, 
and they taught people working in the field that we needed to explore far more. Unfortunately, safety science doesn't tend to make a huge amount of money, and advances are often driven by disasters. And those disasters drove a real change in how we look at things. Firstly, materials have changed massively, the sorts of materials that are used in building. And just making up our household objects have changed drastically. 20, 30 years ago, there would have been materials in your house that, when they burned, would have released toxic gases. Some cavity wall insulation released formaldehyde. They used to use things like perspex in nightclubs, and that produces huge amounts of smoke, which, of course, causes confusion and causes people to pass out much more quickly, which is exactly what you don't want. Our understanding of fire dynamics has improved significantly. Events like King's Cross have resulted in people doing large-scale testing to understand how fire and how smoke travel. And smoke travel through a building is just as important as how fire travels to understand where people can safely get out and where the uh, safe areas are going to be. Another area I think has definitely improved is information sharing. Fire brigades many years ago did talk to one another and did go to conferences, but we didn't have the large databases and the links with scientists that we probably do now. And so now we can go through the records and spot much more quickly problems. And this results in targeted campaigns, which are incredibly useful. For example, we've targeted smokers because for many, many years, smoking materials and cigarettes were linked to a huge number of fires in the home. In the 1990s and 2000s, they noticed that candle fires were on the increase. So they tried desperately to teach people about safety of candles and making sure they weren't getting too many of those. Most recently, London Fire Brigade noticed the number of fridge freezer fires, and we've had a number, quite a lot of those. It's only because they take a note of which materials, which things are burning if they have a kitchen fire, that we get that information as quickly as possible. And then you can go to a manufacturer and say, we're pretty sure there's a problem here, can you sort it out? I then asked Claire for a glimpse of the near future of fire science research. Ooh, that's exciting. I think one of the things we've worked on and that would be really interesting to explore its uses in wider society is water mists and fogs to fight fire. You can get very, very, very small droplets in the environment. You can produce droplets down to microns size, five or even down to two microns. And that can have an extremely important impact on a fire. The amount of heat it absorbs uh, is really important. And it can actually mitigate explosions. It can stop explosions being so bad as well. And they could be a very, very useful alternative to sprinkler systems. They use far less water and seem to absorb much more of the heat than very, very large water droplets that are coming out of sprinkler systems. So I think that's quite an exciting thing that we might see being used in the next few years. I find one of the most exciting advances, though, is an article I was reading recently, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency in the United States, which is effectively their Q branch, their military research center. They've been looking at how we look at fire and what it is. And instead of just treating it as gases, they're treating it like a cold plasma and looking at the fundamentals of it. 
So they've been using things like electromagnetic radiation and acoustic sound waves to try to disrupt fires. So in the future, we could be looking at having sound fire extinguishers instead, which is really interesting. Finally, Claire is a compelling defender of health and safety regulation in the United Kingdom. So I couldn't help asking about health and safety in her own laboratory. Yes, uh, safety is, is paramount, to be honest. Whenever I'm planning anything, it's one of the first things I think about. And we deal with a lot of very dangerous, very toxic substances. We have extremely uh, thick concrete walls and explosion cells to make sure that if we're doing anything dangerous, we don't have to be in the room with it. We will always have fire precautions on hand to make sure nothing can happen to us and we make sure we have the most important masks so that we're not breathing any of the nasty substances that are being produced. I I can understand the issues over health and safety. I I think you can have systems whereby the rules become more important than the reasons they were instigated. But luckily we are in charge of our own health and safety so we can apply our knowledge and our direct knowledge of fire to what we're doing, which is nice. You can find Claire on Twitter and I've put links to both her blog and her research group in the show notes. If I talk to people about fire investigation... People are definitely under the impression that if you burn a room, everything will be destroyed. And that is not true. Fire is extremely discriminating in what it chooses to burn and what it doesn't. And if something is on a surface, for example, the surface will generally be untouched. And there have been many cases where people have assumed that, uh, cases of arson, where people have assumed that the fire would get rid of any evidence and, in fact, hasn't. For example, if you use accelerants like petrol to burn an environment, you can quite often find evidence of the pooling effect. You get these sort of burn patterns where the pool of petrol was that can be seen, so you know it's arson. I even read one case where somebody had climbed in through a window and their fingerprint was actually preserved in the window putty by the fire because of the way it had melted. So that's quite interesting. I think something else that always surprises people is something called smouldering combustion. And this is the action by which uh, we often had cigarette fires. If you get a cigarette down the back of a sofa, it will very, very, very slowly burn away. We call it smouldering combustion because there won't be any flames. You won't be able to see it because of the limited oxygen in that sort of environment. The same is true if it were under some sort of insulation or under cushions. Anything where you've got limited oxygen but enough to support combustion, you can have an extremely slow combustion reaction. And that can go on for hours until eventually you end up with this carbon char layer that collapses. And at that point, there'll be enough oxygen to support combustion and it'll erupt into that flaming combustion we're much more familiar with. Of course, by then, you might well have gone to bed. People aren't aware that fire isn't necessarily an immediate thing. It can happen over many, many hours before you'll be able to see it. The most common myth I hear people talk about and that people are very interested in is spontaneous human combustion quite often I've talked about that to people in pubs and people are very very excited by it and I don't think they're disappointed by what we now know a guy called Professor J.D. DeHaan who uh, is one of the sort of fathers 
of fire investigation. He writes very good textbooks on it. He did a number of experiments involving pigs. They noticed that the cases tend to involve people who had drunk a lot and who smoked. So they wrapped pigs in blankets to sort of pretend that they're wearing clothes and they spilled some alcohol and they put cigarette on it. And what they discovered was that a cigarette will slowly char through and gradually heat up the blanket and fats from the body will swell and they will melt into the blanket and you get effectively a reverse candle. So very, very slowly, a very slow process, the body will burn away through that mode, through leaching into the blanket, and over the course of many, many hours, you can have an entire pig disappear. We can't exactly say how these people die, of course, but we're reasonably sure that that's the action that what we call spontaneous human combustion is. We don't think it's spontaneous and that people are just bursting into flames. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. To find out more, go to disastercast.co.uk where you can find show notes and transcripts of the episode. Thanks especially to Claire Benson and to all those who've tweeted or retweeted about the show. A special thanks to Tom Hodden for the iTunes review. Thanks for listening.